So one of my friends is a computer scientist, and one day he showed me quite proudly a computer program that he'd written, and when I saw it at first, it just looked to me like a wall of text and strange symbols until he explained to me how it worked. JavaScript, which is the programming language of the internet, it begins with a very simple idea known as an if-then statement. So if this thing occurs, then that thing must follow. And uh, therefore, if you click on a link, then the computer must load up the page. That's at least uh, how a lawyer understands computer programming. Uh, but once he explained this very simple, basic idea to me, if, then, suddenly the wall of text that he'd shown me made a lot more sense. Why am I telling you this? Well, I'm, I'm sharing this with you because at first, 2 Peter chapter 2 looks and sounds very difficult to understand, about as difficult as that program. And the, uh, the scholar, the British scholar, Michael Green, once said, Peter gets carried away by his illustrations and the shape of his sentence suffers. That's British for what are you talking about? <laughs> what we're looking at today is one long sentence, a huge wall of text. Here is the key to understanding 2 Peter chapter 2. It is just a very elaborate if-then statement. That's all it is. In fact, it is an if, 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 then statement. He makes five ifs, and we have to wait until the end in verse 9 for the then, for the point. He interrupts himself over and over again before he gets to his point. But his point is this. If God has done this thing, and if God has done this, and this, and this, and this, then surely he will do it again. So now you understand the structure. We can kind of get our heads around the point. You will be greatly assisted by having 2 Peter chapter 2 open in front of you. If you refuse, you will do the, I don't have 2 Peter chapter 2 open in front of me face, and it will put me off. So please, please, uh, open it up. And uh, we're going to turn to the first of these five if statements in verse 4. I think it's page 1018 in the Pew Bible. It might not be, because uh, I don't have that. Is it really? Fantastic. I memorized them. So, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. What do these angels do? You know that thing where one of the kids is in trouble and all the other kids get the kind of scent that there's something going on and start to congregate in the room next to the telling off? That's us. We're going to listen in. What do the angels do? Jude chapter 6 tells us. They did not, you don't need to turn to it, I'll just explain. Jude 6 tells us they, the angels, did not stay within their own position of authority, but rebelled against God. Revelation 12 tells us that a third of the angels, like stars, fell from the heavens. Isaiah 14 tells us that Satan, a bit like an earthly king, tried to place his throne above the throne of God's, and as a result was thrown out. And then agonizingly, that is about it. That is about all we get to listen into from the next room. Uh, scripture just gives us these tantalizing glimpses into that great cosmic event. But my friend Yair, who is the rabbi in this town at Adat Shalom, uh, what he likes to do is he likes to just call me up every few months and, and just tell me something. Uh, and I, I love these. I, I wait for these conversations. Uh, he, he tells me this Jewish midrash 
which is not the Bible. It is authoritative Jewish story. It's commentary, ancient commentary. Uh, weighty, but not in any way like scripture. Uh, a story, if you like, but it's an old one. And the Jewish Midrash says that, that Satan, once upon a time when he was an angel before that fall, uh, was the choir master in heaven. He was responsible for uh, the orchestra in, in the throne room. And, and he and the choir, wanting more glory for themselves, began to begrudge the object of the worship. Why can't we get the glory? We're the musicians here, they were saying. And so they began to worship themselves. It's just a, a story, but we can recognize it, can't we? Often, it will be those with the greatest gifts and the places of prominence that will be called to worship themselves, that will start to want the glory for themselves. As, uh, as Ben said last week, just look how many church mega stars. We still use that image for those that shine. Uh, look how many church megastars have fallen in the last year or two, people that we respected. The, uh, the band, R.E.M., one sang, that's me in the spotlight, losing my religion. That's why we smashed the bulb that shone on the organist. There's something about the light that improperly shone that leads us away from God. When we start to shine the light upon ourselves, we tend to fall away from God. And so Peter says in verse 4, if even powerful, ancient, beautiful, heavenly, angelic beings can rebel against God and be judged, and he lets it hang as he interrupts himself with a second if statement, verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world. That was the first reading from today. Uh, Noah and the flood in Genesis chapter 6 tells us that at the time, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and it grieved God to his heart. And so you see there in Genesis 6, our first lesson that was read for us by Ben, God just looking at the world that he'd made and looking at sin potentiating around the globe like a chain reaction of sin begetting sin, and he regrets that he has done this. And he says, I will blot out man whom I have created. Again, judgment comes. First in the heavens, and then globally over the whole earth. And judgment comes, and just as we're getting into it, just as we're getting into the story, Peter interrupts himself again with a third if statement, verse 6. If, no, he hasn't made a point yet. If, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. So now you have the heavens, the whole earth, and now regional, local cities. Sodom and Gomorrah. These were bywords for sin. One scholar says they were famed for their affluence, softness, and immorality. And, quote, they had outgrown the idea of God. That's his summary. They'd pushed God out of their cities. We don't need you. They'd pushed God out of their public discourse, out of their politics. And from there, they'd pushed God out of their homes and from there out of their hearts. God had been eradicated in those cities, or so they thought. And you do not need to be a genius to work out what the main activity of sin was in the city of Sodom. But while you work it out, spare a thought for poor old Gomorrah, will you? 
Sodom at least gets to become a verb. I like to think of Gomorrah as the, uh, as the United Kingdom to the USA of Sodom, a sort of uh, junior partner. Very much the same, though, very much cut from the same cloth. These two cities are characterized by darkness. That's the issue. So again, what happens? Judgment comes. There's a pattern building up now. And we have three negative if statements, no points yet, but we see a pattern for sure, that this pushing away of God and rebelling against God leads to judgment in heaven, then on earth, and then in these little cities. Now, if you look closely, though, there's two more if statements yet to come. And these ones are a little bit easier to digest, a bit nicer to read. Positive ifs. They're not about judgment. These ones are about rescue on a smaller scale, at the scale of the family and the scale of the individual, but still good news. Please jump back to verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others. Preserved means watched over. We're being told right here that God, in the midst of all of that horror, that chain reaction of sin, was watching over this one man and his family. God was watching Noah. Why? Why did God preserve him? What's different? Because, verse 5, it says, Noah preached. Noah was a herald. Noah tried to get the light off himself and shine it back on God where it belongs. He proclaimed God. And that he might have actually not had a very big congregation. He seems only to have reached his family. And he might have only succeeded in bringing good news to just seven people. But just imagine if we all did this. Imagine that chain reaction. If everyone was a herald to his own household. Maybe you're the only one in your house with a lamp. Maybe that's why God put you there. And Peter lets it hang. Agonizingly close to making a point. But he interrupts himself again with a fifth if. Verse 7. So we're right down now to the, the level of the individual. You see how this is getting smaller from the cosmic to the global to the local to the familial to the individual. You see how it's coming down. Uh, and he says here in verse 7, if, fifth if statement, he rescued righteous Lot. And this word righteous is even stronger than the other one we just looked at. It means to be rescued or delivered. It means to be drawn up. Scholars uh, think this word is actually derived from what happens when you get caught in a, in a strong flow of water, when you get kind of washed along. Uh, think about the natural water slides in Ohio pile um, and the liability certificate you had to complete when you threw our youth group into it. Think about that, you know, kind of thing. Like the lady that you described who fell off the boat and got washed along and you all, you know, think that kind of thing. Bobbing along in the water and the, the flow is coming uh, you want to join the youth group now, don't you? Oh. Lot is literally rushed out of the way by God. Just, just given the bum's rush, he's just flushed away. Uh, out of the way of harm, though, and into safety. And if you read the Genesis account, we don't have time to do that this morning, what you will see is that Lot is basically forced out. And you'll see also that some of his family never makes it. So why does he? 
Why does Lot get rescued while others get judged? Peter says, because like Noah, Lot was righteous. There is a point brewing here. We're getting to a point. If God judges unrighteous angels, and if God judges unrighteous worlds, and if God judges unrighteous cities, and if God rescues godly families, and if God rescues godly individuals, then, verse 9, if then, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. What an incredibly complicated way to make an incredibly simple point. If God has done it before, then God will do it again. And he's tested the point at the extremes. Just in case anyone starts to wiggle and go, yeah, yeah, well, it doesn't really apply to me. Yeah, it does, actually. No one is too big to be judged. Not even angels. Not even worlds. And no one is too small to be rescued. Not even one individual. He's tested the point at the extremes and he's made it over and over again in rather a, a clever way, I think. So now, now we get it. That's the point. That's the sermon. Uh, what we can do is we can actually apply this a little bit to our lives. Uh, I'd like to spend a few moments just applying the idea that God judges and he rescues. And if he's done it before, then he will do it again. And uh, as we do this, I also want to try and head off a couple of theological mistakes that are rather easy to make. So let's zoom in together, please, on, on verse 7, if, if we might. Righteous Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, verse 8. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. God knows it was exhausting for Lot to live where he lived. It was just tormenting and exhausting for Lot to live so close to Sodom, as many of us do right now. If you are in the public school system, if you work in a secular workplace, if you own anything at all with a screen, you will see a torrent of lawless deeds all day long, celebrated by people you know as though they were good. For the next month, our streets will be dripping with symbols of, of witchcraft and demons and death and the occult. And most of us will not join the dots as to why this world seems so dark. In fact, we'll bribe our kids with candy to do it even more. But those in the light will be tormented by these symbols. Those who get it will have their eyes assaulted by these things and their ears assaulted by these things and their souls assaulted by these things, as was the case with Lot, who lived so close to Sodom. Uh, for me, my Sodom moment came very early in, in my Christian faith. Uh, I went to uh, become a Christian. I went to a Christian conference in a field. It's called New Wine, and uh, great teaching. The, the, it's, it's now mushroomed into four new wines, and uh, if, you, if you can picture mushroom wine, and you have 10,000 Christians, now 40,000 Christians, camping in a field with tents everywhere, and lectures, 10 lectures, uh, one every hour during the day, and a great meeting at the end. In the morning, we went to lectures by, by movie stars on, on how to find God in the movies of Quentin Tarantino. 
And in the evenings, we listened to a scholar exposit the whole of the book of Romans. It was just an unbelievable week of worship. Uh, the worship leader was, was Matt Redman, who wrote half the songs we sing in this church. I mean, it was great. And, uh, and then I came home, and my housemates were non-believers. And if you think that's bad, let me, let me tell you how bad it was. Uh, even worse, they were from Manchester, which, which is the Gomorrah of England, if ever. That has, and they'd been thoroughly Gomorrahized, my housemates. There is a verb. Having, having turned to Christ, um, all the jokes and the stories and the phrases and the language that seemed so funny just a couple of weeks earlier, they suddenly felt like an assault. I don't want to see that anymore. I don't want to hear that anymore. It was just so agonizing to go from that field with 10,000 Christians to, to this house with two men from Manchester. Um, still good friends. I hope they're not watching. But uh, righteous Lot was, was tormented by the sin of the world around him. And if you look closely at Peter's then statement, what God says to us through Peter is, if God could rescue righteous Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. That can be you. If you are assaulted by the world around you, God can rescue you and not prevent you from going through trials. Do you see this? Do you see the subtlety of the point? Not prevent you from going through a trial. Not hide you in some perfect little Christian room. Not keep you on the conference for the rest of your earthly life. That isn't what God promises here. God doesn't promise to keep us in church. We'll change the pews to lazy boys. God doesn't keep us in church forever where it's safe near the sermons and the coffee. We're not insulated from the world. We're rescued from it. There is a difference. Maybe you're bereaved this week, or you're unemployed, or you hate your job. Maybe you've had news and you're suffering in your health. Maybe you have the neighbors from hell. Maybe you're an addict. Maybe every single night for you is just a white-knuckle ride to resist. And for you, your Sodom is in your head and it's in your DNA. Maybe that's you. If that is you, then... God knows how to rescue you from that. And if God has done it before, then God will do it again. And if there's someone doing it to you, or something, if there's some person or power behind the torment, then God knows how to deal with them as well. There's the encouragement, not only to rescue, but to judge. Uh, we know this because uh, the then statement goes on. The then statement hasn't finished. It's mirroring the ifs, good and bad stuff. Then God knows to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. What that's telling us is a day is coming when all of this will be exposed. A day of judgment is on the way. When that day comes, justice will be complete. But that day has not arrived yet, and so justice has not arrived yet. However, right here, right now, it is as if the eternal effects of that rescue or that judgment have been brought forward into the here and the now. 
those who are doing these things to you, who will face judgment one day and have not yet, are indeed experiencing as punishment the present-day effects of their future destiny. Right here, right now. God preserves the godly in trial, and he punishes the unrighteous now. Not yet judged, but certainly facing the effects. So for all of the billboards and the glossy advertising campaigns that Sodom had poured all of its money into, all of the Facebook ads they'd taken out to come to our city, tomorrow was probably on Instagram, it was, it was actually not much fun in Sodom. It, for all of their adverts, it actually wasn't that great. It's not that fun in the dark. This absolutely pains me to say it, but Kurt Cobain was wrong. With the lights out, it is not less dangerous. One of my favorite songs is Wrong. In communities, and we see this over and over again, in communities that feel they have outgrown God, it is often in those communities where the suffering is worst. The stats bear it out. Every person, every family, every city, every world that pushes God away ends up suffering. So if you're looking at all of this, and you're tracking with me, and now you're afraid, (laughs) and you're thinking, well, hang on a minute, if God judges the godless and he rescues the righteous, and I know myself, and I know I'm not righteous, what am I going to do? If that's your thinking, here's some good news. Lot was not righteous either, not by his deeds anyway. Neither was Noah for that matter. Can anyone tell me what's one of the first things that Noah does after the flood in Genesis chapter 9? Anyone know? He goes camping, he takes off all his clothes and he gets roaring drunk. Why he was naked, no one knows, but he was about 600 years old at the time, so we can assume it was not a pretty sight. (laughs) And Lot was worse. Lot was worse than Noah. God says to Lot, look man, you can go anywhere you like within this huge territory that I am giving to you. You can go anywhere you like at all. Just whatever you do, do not go into Sodom. That's the rule. So where does Lot go, do you think, in this huge expanse of territory that he's got to choose from? Where do you think he goes? Right next to Sodom. Like, like right here. It's like one of my kids, you know, not touching it, not touching it, you know, just, come on, man. When the, when the kids were little, we give them boundaries. They say, like, okay, now you're five years old. You can now play on the driveway. You are seven. You've been responsible. You may now go as far as the mailbox. Where do you think was the first place they went? With a picnic blanket and snacks. The mailbox. Why? It's not that good. Like, you know, age 10, you may now go to the big oak tree off with the picnic blanket. The minute there's a boundary, it is our human nature to go right up to it. Because surely God's wrong, and that's where the fun is, right? That is so human. Why do you have to get so close? Well, the answer is because there's something deep in our hearts that speculates and maybe even hopes that there's something fun going on in there. And and maybe if I get close enough, now I don't intend to go in, absolutely not, but if I get close enough, maybe I'll fall in, and then it won't really be my fault. Have you seen The Lion King? As soon as Simba says, what's that shadowy place over there, Father? 
And his pastor says, we don't go there, son. Like, we all know what's going to happen next, don't we? Every single one of us is going, ah, oh, go into the shadowy grave. You know, I mean, even the pagans keep writing these Bible stories because it's so human. It's what we all do. Where is the line? Let me go right up to the line. And a bit of me says, maybe, hopefully, I might just fall in because I think I might like it in there. I actually wonder if this is the essence of the torment for Lot. Not only is he seeing all this horror, but part of the torment is some corner of his heart wants the horror. Some part of him wants the darkness. Most of him hates it, for sure, but some part of it loves it. And then he hates some part of himself. Is that the essence of the torment of Lot? Is that not the essence of the torment of all of us? Surely, if we're going to be honest, and this is church, we should be, it is true of every single one of us here. The good news is this. God does not look upon Noah and upon Lot and judge them according to their righteous deeds. And he does not judge them according to their mistakes either. He looks upon them and he judges them according to his son. They've been bought, it says in verse 1, and Ben covered this point last week, bought, paid for by Jesus, purchased and redeemed is what that beautiful word means. What it means is that the highest price was paid for people like Noah and, and Lot. And so therefore, Jesus bears the judgment that they deserve. And exchange, exchanges his righteousness for them. That's the good news. And so if God rescued them, then he will rescue you. That is what the lamp in the darkness does. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's good to laugh at ourselves and to confess. And I just thank you, God, for the opportunity to do that this morning. Would you please uh, give to us uh, a wisdom to view ourselves as you do, both in the darkness of our hearts, but far more importantly, in the brightness of the light that you've shone into them. Thank you, God, for, for delivering us from ourselves. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you do it again. In the name of Jesus, amen.